Good morning. Sorry I can't be with you this morning. I'll get to that in a moment. We do want all of you to know that we here at ECC are watching and processing the current spike in the pandemic, and we're all uh, listening to instructions that come down to us from the state and from the county, and we're constantly reevaluating our plans. Because of that, I encourage you all in the weeks to come to watch your email, to check our website and our Facebook accounts to stay up to date in case something does change. Along these lines, the reason I'm not in person this morning is because although I've not been able to be tested, I'm showing some very mild symptoms. And out of an abundance of caution, we thought it best for me to stay home and record the sermon for this morning. This is the plan for our staff at ECC, and we encourage you to do the same. Let's love each other and our neighbors enough to wear masks where appropriate and to follow the guidelines. Chances are that most of us have, at one time or another, used the term backfire to describe something we did that we thought was a good idea at the time, but then later it turned out not to be such a good idea. Today we might most often think of a gun that backfires or perhaps the premature ignition of a car engine. As far back as 1912, the word backfire was used metaphorically to describe what happens when something we planned or tried to do ended up hurting the initiator instead of uh, helping the intended object or person. So, for example, maybe, maybe at Thanksgiving dinner a couple of years ago, you tried to get two of your estranged relatives to come together to have a civil conversation about religion or politics or whatever. But instead, they just ended up getting to a fight and a shouting match, and the two of them left and stormed out, making things worse, not better. You may, over coffee and pumpkin pie a little bit later, have turned to someone and said, well, that backfired, didn't it? But none of these are how the word backfire was first used. Additionally, we think of backfire perhaps as a verb, but it was originally a noun. And as a noun, it dates back to the mid-1800s. In writing, the soonest we can find it is about 1832, And there it referred to an intentionally set fire to control the wildfire. So this intentionally set fire was called a backfire, a fire that was set in advance of the direction a wildfire was going to create a barren area area where there was nothing to burn, therefore stopping the advance of the flames and protecting your property. However, that didn't always work. Sometimes those setting the backfire would lose control of it and and the fire would turn and destroy everything that was supposed to be protecting. The backfire backfired. And while fighting fire with fire in pioneer times could work, fighting fire with fire today is not the best way. To quote Johnny Lawrence from Cobra Kai, if any of you are watching that series on Netflix, you don't fight fire with fire, you fight fire with water. To fight fire with fire, then, is is to match method method to method, aggression with aggression. But this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of love. For Jesus fought hate with love. Jesus fought aggression with grace. He fought those who sought to kill him, not by striking back with equal force, not by trying to kill his opponents, but by dying for them instead. According to an ancient Orthodox liturgy, Jesus trampled down death by death. He trampled down our deaths with his own death. In the last chapter of Dan White Jr.'s Love Over Fear, and this is the last Sunday in this series on Love Over Fear, Dan White uses the illustration of Aikido to make his point. Aikido is a form of martial arts that does not strike or kick the opponent, but uses the opponent's aggression against them. It takes the punch that is thrown and tries to absorb the energy of that punch and redirect it. Dan White likens Aikido to forgiveness. He says, quote, The goal of Aikido is to frustrate the violence of your attacker, eventually exhausting them and neutralizing them. 
Forgiveness is not giving yourself over to the attacker. It's giving yourself over to another way of being, a way that disempowers the threat. The goal, in part, is to exhaust your attacker. It is, as some theologians would say, exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He absorbed all the sin and evil that was hurled at him, and he exhausted it. What might it look like for us to absorb and exhaust the evil, the hate, and the anger that are sometimes thrown at us? Pardon me while I nerd out for just a minute or so. In the Marvel film, Doctor Strange, the final battle scene between Doctor Strange and the villain Dormammu, which is a funny-sounding word, but it's fun to say, that final battle is a, is a powerful picture of this choice we're talking about. Scott Derrickson, the director of that film, identifies as a follower of Jesus, so that makes this scene even more fascinating to me. The way Dr. Strange defeats the enemy is by dying over and over and over again. He says that while he can never defeat Dormammu, he can lose again and again and again in an endless time loop, which is sort of Dr. Strange's, uh, one of his superpowers. And in so doing, eventually the enemy gives in and surrenders in order to end this imprisonment in the time loop Dr. Strange has created. Dr. Strange, like Jesus, absorbs and exhausts the power of evil, and by doing so, He is victorious. And so the Apostle Paul begins our passage this morning by quoting from Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. The section of the book of Romans we heard read earlier is part of a larger section that goes from Romans 12, 14 to chapter 13, verse 10. And within that section, Paul deals with divisions and animosity from within the church, with one's sisters and brothers in Christ, and he deals with opposition from without as well. In the church in Rome, as we've talked about before, there were divisions between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, many of the Jews had been expelled by the emperor years ago, but now that they have returned, they've discovered a radically Romanized and Gentilized church. And so there's conflict, there's disagreement, there's division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians within the church in Rome. In a sense, then, there are enemies within the church. Enemies. But there are also enemies outside of the church. Romans, pagan soldiers, and anybody who represented the Roman Empire. The answer in both of these situations is love of neighbor, which is where Paul is going to take things when he sums them up at the end of this section. In Romans 12, verses 9 through 13, which we did not have read earlier, Paul first speaks to us as followers of Jesus, and he says in verse 9, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. But then he shifts his focus beyond the walls of the community of faith. Now, some of what Paul says in the verses that follow could still apply within the community of faith, but most of it is clearly moving outwards. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. In verse 14, Paul dips his toes into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 or Luke 6. And then he begins to riff on it, to improvise in the Spirit, to expand on the way of life Jesus describes in practical but challenging ways. Verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
like a jazz musician, Paul improvises on the themes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And those improvisations speak to difficult relationships inside the church and our relationships with our persecutors and enemies outside the church, too. And if we dig a little deeper into this Sermon on the Mount from which Paul is borrowing, we discover that Jesus gives three powerful and challenging examples of what living lives of blessing and love toward our enemies might look like in the ancient world. These instructions are not exhaustive. They are practical, of course, but they are also meant to ignite our imaginations. These are illustrations which we are then to go and improvise on as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 39 to 41, Jesus says this, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And our immediate reaction might be, well, if I did all that, I'd be beaten up, exhausted, far from home, and naked. So on more than a few occasions, I've had people tell me that this looks like we're just supposed to suffer and submit ourselves to becoming someone's doormat. They're free to walk over us, to wipe their feet on us, do whatever they want, and we're to do nothing to stop them. And these kinds of ways of looking at things, that attitude has been used by by well-meaning Christians to coerce people to stay with their abusers because that's what Jesus would want from us. But there is more going on in each of these. So borrowing a bit from Dan White, but also from several other sources I've consulted over the years, let's quickly run through each of these illustrations Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. First, all three of these attacks would naturally tempt us to strike back, to in some way meet aggression with aggression, to fight fire with fire. If you hit me, I'll hit you. If you take my clothing, I'll take your clothing. If you force me to walk a mile, then one day you can bet I'm going to force you to walk a mile for me. But Jesus gives us another way. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now again, I've often heard this used as, as, as saying that if someone hits you once, you just keep letting them hit you again and again. Keep turning the other cheek. But then why the very specific reference to being slapped on the right cheek? What is that about? It's a clue. Put simply, if someone strikes you on your right cheek in that culture, they would have to either do so with their, uh, the back of their right hand or with an open-handed left-hand slap. And both of these were insults. To be hit with someone's left hand or to be backhanded was dishonorable. It was demeaning. For instance, if a Roman soldier slapped a Jewish person or if a master slapped a slave. But turning the other cheek, you do that and then you are insisting that your attacker see you differently and that they treat you with more dignity. You are asserting your power and your place in the relationship. This is not just about submitting to a beating. It's about challenging your attacker's bias and assumptions about the relationship. It's about forcing them to reconsider things. In so doing, you're not backing down. You're not submitting. You're standing up. And you're standing your ground, but in a non-violent way, in a Christ-like way. If someone demands your shirt, give them your cloak as well. Why? How is this a good response? Because in doing so, you shame the one who has done you wrong. And you protect your own character and your own formation by not becoming like them. And that, too, is an assertion of your dignity. Also, this is a form of protest. Likewise, in that day and age, a Roman soldier was permitted to force anyone to carry his belongings as far as one mile. But if you chose to walk a second mile once again, you are taking the power away from the soldier. You're, you're, you're choosing to do something you don't have to do. And by doing so, you now gained a level of power in that relationship you didn't have before. You're making a statement. Again, it's a form of protest. These illustrations 
are meant to ignite our imaginations as followers of Jesus so that we will ask how we might be able to resist an evildoer in a nonviolent way today, how we might fight fire not with fire but with water. Now, getting back to our passage in Romans 12, Paul shifts gears. No, he says, don't live this way. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul quotes here from Proverbs, and he gives us a different way to live, a third way. We do not surrender all to our enemies. We do not conquer our enemies with violence. We forgive them. We show them kindness. Not to be passive-aggressive, which is how we might hear that today, but to take a stand. To refuse to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Love of neighbor includes love of our enemies. Jesus is very clear on this. If our enemy is in need, we meet that need. After all, as Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, God leads us to repentance, not by judgment, not by threat, but by his kindness. And so we are to be kind too. When we do this, though, what does it mean to heap burning coals on the heads of our enemies? That sounds like a bad thing, right? Well, there are different ways of interpreting this. One is that by doing this, if our enemies do not repent and treat us as the way we should be treated, they, in fact, do bring judgment on themselves, which in some places can be uh, represented as, as burning coals, metaphorically. After all, Paul earlier said that we should not take revenge on those who wrong us, but rather leave room for God to avenge us instead. And there may be something to that. However, there is also something to the image that is a bit gentler. One older interpretation is that the burning coals are a metaphor for the shame your enemy feels for having mistreated you. Perhaps it is more likely understood as something that could go a couple of ways. Maybe your enemy will be moved by your kindness and brought to repentance. There's an ancient Egyptian act of repentance in which the penitent person carried burning coals upon his or her head through the village as a sign of repentance. Or perhaps our kindness will bring shame and discomfort on our enemies and they will be softened. I personally lean in the direction uh, that the imagery represents the power of an act of kindness in the face of animosity because Paul ends this section with the exhortation, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's nothing here about judgment. It's all about overcoming evil, and we do not fight fire with fire. We fight fire with water. Otherwise, the fire we use may backfire and do damage to us or others in the process. Kerry Newhoff, a pastor and author in Canada, recently wrote a blog post in which he shared his observations of what's going on in the United States in terms of the, uh, the energy around the presidential election and the culture and, and beyond. He outlines three practices the church can engage in in order to help our divided culture. First, he says, we need to confess whatever part our words, our actions have played in creating or sustaining or inflaming the division in our nation. We need to confess whatever part we have played in adding to this division. Second, quoting him, a divided nation needs a united church. A divided nation needs a united church. In this series, we have sought to lead the way in how we might reframe our lives in just such a way. How can we be united going forward? Unity in the church of Jesus Christ, unity in this congregation, is what our nation and our community needs, whether they know it or not. We do not need more harsh rhetoric. We need unity. We need compassion. We need tolerance. We need love. We need forgiveness. And third, he says, an exhausted culture needs an alternative to itself, not an echo of itself. 
An exhausted culture, and that's what we have, needs an alternative to itself, not an echo of itself. He continues, quote, Authentic, grace-filled, hope-bearing, truthful people are what our friends and neighbors need. A generation tired of hate, yet caught in its grip, will only be released from it if there's a clear alternative. Hope counters hate better than hate counters hate, and hope is what the church at its best offers. Not hope in a candidate, not hope in a political party, hope in Christ, someone in the world who also transcends the world. Amen? Hope counters hate better than hate counters hate. Put another way, water is better at fighting fire than fire is. Forgiveness is better than vengeance or violence. Matching the aggression of our enemies will only backfire on us and destroy us. We, you and I, were meant for more than this. And we have all we need to be what God intends us to be in Christ. I was reading an article by Eugene Peterson this week, and he once said that the role of the pastor is to help his or her people become who God wants them to be. My role is to help you become who God wants you to be. At issue in all of these things is not so much that we do these things in order to win our enemies over. That's always the hope, of course, but it is certainly not guaranteed. Rather, we do these things, we live this way, so that we become more like Christ, not less so. We love our enemies, not because our enemies will always be changed, but so that we might move further along in our journey of transformation, that we would become more like Christ, more Christiform people. And while spewing forth hatred and anger and aggression against our enemies may feel cathartic, as Dan White says, it is not by any means transforming anyone. While spewing forth anger and hatred and aggression against our enemies may feel cathartic, it is not by any means transforming anyone. The good news we have been celebrating and responding to throughout this series is that while we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself in Christ Jesus. While we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself in Christ Jesus. How did he do it? He did it by dying for us. At the end of the larger section we've been looking at this morning, Paul writes this in verse 8 of chapter 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Friends, sisters and brothers in Christ, if God has loved us, if God in Christ has died for us, has been raised again for us, even while we were God's enemies, how much more so ought we who have come to know God in Christ, who have come to know and experience the love and forgiveness and mercy of God, seek to forgive and love and be kind to our enemies? If God has won us over and led us to repentance by his mercy and kindness, how much more so ought you and I to seek the power of God's Spirit in order to do the same? Would you pray with me as we close?